Well, the truth of that song is just that last one in particular, so very profound. That the Ancient of Days knows my name. And he knows a lot more than just my name. He knows my needs. He knows where I'm at. And he knows what truth we all need together this morning. And so in his providence and goodness, he's brought us to the text of John 17 once more. I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to that passage, and we'll pick up our study where we left off. And as you turn there, I will tell you that at our community pool, which we're not using much right now for rather obvious reasons, there's different sections there at the pool. There's the kiddie pool, and then there's uh, the shallow end of the pool, and then there's what I think should only be referred to from now on as the big deep because it's 12 to 15 feet deep or so. And uh, wouldn't you know it, that's the end of the pool that my kids prefer to play in, the, the, the lethal end of the pool. And uh, we'll just go ahead and leave aside the fact right now that I live with a bunch of little daredevils and, and talk about the fact that over these past three weeks, I feel a little bit like we as a church have been playing here in the big deep in John 10, or it's John 17, 1 through 10. You know, I half expected to see some of you showing up this morning wearing water wings, and I'm glad that none of you did that. Uh, But this has been some really profound truth that we've been in here over the past several weeks, has it not? Where John 17, 1 through 10, it has really caught us up into some just very profound truth about who our God is, what he's done in Christ, and what our place in all of that is. And And as we get going here this morning, let me just go ahead and throw you back off into the deep end and remind you a little bit about where we are at. Three weeks ago, we learned there in the first part of this great chapter that the revelation of God's glory, the demonstration of his glory, that is his eternal purpose. And he is unlike any other, and he is intent upon the universe knowing it. See, our God reigns and everybody will ultimately bow their knee. That's what we learned three weeks ago. Two weeks ago, as we continue to work our way through the first part of John 17, we learned that that our ability to comprehend, to see, to know all of that glory of God is fully contingent upon the work of Christ having been accomplished. He came to reveal to us the Father's glory. And that's the reason why we worship him as king, which then led us into the truth of the text from last week that that now Christ having done his work, the glory of God is most plainly manifested as Christ is now being formed in us, sinners being transformed into saints, where God's grand plan is to put himself on display, not only through our salvation, but now our sanctification as we are conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And what a privilege that is. But as we said last week, that realization comes with kind of just a really big gulp, so to speak. Because you and I, we all know that that we are not sufficient for these things. We do not have the capacity or the ability on our own to manifest the glory of God to the degree that he is worthy of that glory being shown. 
That is beyond our ability to, to do, and yet that is the mission that God says he sent his son to accomplish. So, in light of that, welcome to the deep end. But see, Jesus, he doesn't just toss us out there in over our heads and walk away. No, in verse 9, if you remember, and this is marvelous now, Jesus recognizes our inability and he specifically says, so now I am praying for them. Is that not the most wonderful statement of encouragement and equipping that you could possibly ever imagine? I mean, as we've learned here, the goal is that we would be saved and sanctified and thereby demonstrate the glory of God, but the truth is that we have no capacity to accomplish that goal at all on our own. We are in way over our heads. But the good news of this text is that there is a life preserver, and now Jesus throws it out to us here in these verses. And that life preserver is this truth. It is only as God secures us in our salvation, and as he empowers us in our sanctification, that his glory will be seen. You're right. You and I, we are incapable, but God is capable. And ultimately, he is the one who enables these things to take place in our lives so that his glory might be seen. And with that now, we have a lifeline to actually be able to have hope to fulfill the purpose John 17 is calling us to. So, having raised the stakes well beyond the the status of attainment last week when we made the statement, you're responsible to glorify God. (laughs) No way, how? Well, let me show you now, this week and in the weeks to come, just how God makes that impossible mission possible. See, in the rest of this chapter, Jesus, he has two very specific and important requests for the Father to do his work as it relates to us in making it possible for us to show his glory. Request number one, you can find it in verses 11 through 15, and it's just simply this. Father, protect, preserve, keep their salvation. See, his first request is for our protection, but his second request is for our progressive perfection. In verses 16 through 19, he essentially prays this, perfect them in that salvation. See, the only way that you can be saved or sanctified is as God does his work in us. And this week, we're going to uh, deal with the first request for our protection. And next time we're together, we'll cover the second request for our sanctification. See, and as we talk about the Father's protection this morning, it is my most sincere hope that, that as all of you listen today, you will find in the words of Jesus rock solid, clear evidence that it is possible for you to have assurance of your salvation. And the reason for that is because God is the one who protects you. He is the one who preserves you. And if he is doing his work, then you, my friend, have no reason to doubt what he is doing in you at all. And that is the truth that we are going to be encouraged by as we go through this text together here this morning. So, 
based upon the Father's protection, Jesus here in these next four or five verses is going to give us a pathway to having the assurance of our salvation. And there's really three steps in what he says here, and we'll just break them down and walk our way through them one at a time. And the first one, we can see it right here in verse 11, is that we would recognize the priority of God's protection. Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, but they are, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. That is a very profound statement that puts the burden of your security, your eternal security on God and not on your own performance. See, if if it's up to us to secure and preserve ourselves, <laughs> well, mission failure. I, I, I know I'm going to fail before I even start. But the reality of it, as Jesus teaches us here, is that the success of this mission does not depend upon you. It depends upon the God who is at will and work to his good pleasure in you. It is his work to secure us and to protect us. And that is why Jesus says what he says here, because he opens up there in verse 11 with a pretty clear setup. He reminds us of the statement that he's made so many times in the past four chapters, where he says, I am no longer in the world. I'm leaving but they, my followers, are. And that was a frightful statement for these men. Don't you remember what Jesus said to them back in the early part of John chapter 16? I know that was only one chapter back, but it's been several months where Jesus told the disciples straight up, this world wants to chew you up, spit you out, and put your theology through a wood chipper. That's a paraphrase. But that's essentially what he says to them. See, they were going, the world was, to put 10 out of 11 of his followers, the men left in the room, to death. And the only one who was going to escape is the author of the book that we're, that we're reading right now. See, they were going to be left in this frightful kind of world. And Jesus says, look, I know that I'm leaving, and I know that they're staying. I know that I'm coming to you, Father, and they're going to be left here. He knows good and well that you and I and these disciples needed truth that would sustain them, that would enable them to be faithful, truth on which they could lean in the midst of difficult days. And that is the reason why he now turns his attention to this request in particular and says, so, Holy Father, keep them in your name. That's the work that Jesus and his Father have made possible for you. It's because he knew that we were going to need something that we could lean on and trust, something beyond ourselves. You know, I got a good taste of this one winter night a couple of years ago. I was standing out on a dock with some friends from church, and I'm telling you, it was cold enough to be able to see our breath. And we won't talk about right now why we were actually out there, but, but there on the dock at the end was, was a ladder that had been swung up for the winter, and I assumed, obviously, the ladder should be secure. And so I proceeded to kind of lean up against the ladder, assuming that the ladder would be, would be trustworthy. Being on a hinge, obviously, it wasn't. And the stairs, the ladder, swung out over the water as I tightly clung to them. 
And as I hung there, suspended in midair, arms flailing, one foot on the dock, I thought to myself, and only that way when something terrible is about to happen, you know, all those thoughts that run through your head, my first thought was, I cannot believe that this is happening. (laughs) My second thought was, I never should have trusted that ladder. (laughs) And there at the very last minute, my eight months pregnant wife reached out and pulled me back by my belt. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not a picture of dignity or my finest moment. But you know, sometimes I think that that we have a tendency to look at our salvation as though it's that dock ladder that that may or may not sustain us. It it may or may not be able to be trusted. And, and And if you're pinning the assurance of your salvation to your own faith, much less your own performance, you should not be surprised when that ladder swings you out right over those cold waters of doubt. Instead, what you need is the truth that Jesus gives us here in verse 11. It's the Holy Father that keeps us in His name. See, that is the source of trustworthiness that you and I can pin all of our hopes on that is capable of sustaining us because there's nothing in me that can sustain me or my faith or my salvation. The only one who can secure me is God the Father himself. And that's why Jesus makes the request that he makes here. And and here's the truth of it now. The the assurance of your salvation, friend, it's, it's not contingent on your own performance or even on your own faith. It's contingent upon the nature of who your God is. And how trustworthy is He, I ask you? Well, you know He is immovable, described in the Bible as being the rock, the mountain, the fortress of our salvation, a strong tower to whom we can run and now find refuge. That is who our God is, and it's the reason why Jesus refers to Him here as Holy Father. See, this is the only place in Scripture where that particular title is used. And the reason why Jesus uses that title here is to highlight and draw attention to the spectacular nature of who your God is. It's as though he's saying here, awesome Father, incomparable, righteous judge, you keep them in your name. And when he says keep them there, It's a word that means to hold securely, to watch over carefully, to to be a shield for, a fortress unto. And here Jesus roots your salvation, the protection of your eternal security in God's power to be this strong fortress of salvation for you. And that's the reason why he says now, not just keep them, but keep them in your name, Holy Father. You know, over the past several weeks, we've, we've at length talked about the fact that God's name is a representation of the totality of who he is. His name, I am, Yahweh, represents the, the fullness of his character, the greatness of his glory. And so when Jesus says here, keep them in your name, he is calling to bear the fullness of God, the fullness of his power, the grandeur of his grace, and saying, because of who you are, keep them in your name, by your name, for your name. See, that's what he's saying here. And and given the fact that he ties your security to the very nature of God, well, what does that mean? It means there's no way that God is losing you. And that's the reason why he says, 
Keep them in your name, which you have given me, so that they may be one even as we are one. What does that mean? It means that just as surely as the Father and the Son are one, indissolubly connected, if you be in Christ, you now are made one with him. And he cannot lose you. Just as surely as the Father and the Son cannot be disconnected, so now if you be in Christ, you and the Father cannot be disconnected. You are one just as they are one because of the work that Christ has done, because God is the one who is responsible to now keep you in his name. And he does that by the might and the power of who he is, his nature. It keeps you. See, look now, if, if I could lose my salvation, I would as soon as it became possible for me to lose it because I have no capacity in myself to keep it. But friend, it's not up to me to stay saved. It is up to God and he cannot fail for he having sworn by himself, by his most holy name, keeps me in the fullness of his character. So if somehow it did become possible for God to lose you, which is just a ridiculous statement and thought on its own, then here's the ramification. He would no longer be God. To renege on his word would be to destroy himself. And so given that truth and, and given what we're learning here in this verse and the priority of it, let me ask you a really important point of application now, a question. If the Father and the Son have come together to keep you in their name and brought all their glorious might to bear upon that problem, what right do you have to doubt his ability to do it? If you have been granted the salvation of God, to doubt that salvation is to doubt the ability of God to be God. And you can't do that. It's wrong. See, if you asked me in light of all of this, well, then how can I know for sure that I'm saved? Good question. Question that I often get asked. I wouldn't point you back to your faith because faith, it ebbs and flows. There are days where my faith is feeling strong, but then there are days where my faith is weak and I have to repent and ask God to, to help me in my, in my unbelief. My faith, it rises and it falls. I wouldn't point you back to your, to your fruit either. I wouldn't say, well, let's, let's just, you know, look at all the good things that you've done and that's the assurance of your salvation or the good things that you haven't done or the bad things that you have done. Be, because the reality, friend, is that there are days that are, that are better than others. You know that just as well as I do. Days where if I look at my life, ooh, clearly I'm saved. Other days, oh, wow. If that's the source of my assurance, there are days where I'm, I'm in trouble. But, but here's what we point to. Because there is one source of salvation that never changes. God is Holy Father, and He has promised by the power of His own name to secure me in my place before Him. And only He is capable of doing that work to secure me. 
And so when it comes to me thinking through how to know whether or not I'm saved, I don't pin my hopes on my performance. I don't pin my hopes on the strength of my faith or the the product of my life. No, I pin my hopes on the reality of who Jesus Christ is and the fact that He now has entrusted me to the person of His most holy Father who cannot, will not fail to do that which He has promised for me having placed my faith in just those promises. And so there is now no reason for me to need to doubt the reality of who I am in Christ. If my faith has been placed in Him, then I am who I am. I am one with the Father, and He is never going to lose me. See, now that we've established the Father as the only one who, who can, who does, who will secure you, let's move along. And let's ask ourselves the question, what is the proof of the fact that God will actually do this? Well, to answer that question, let's go to verse 12 and see the lengths that he's already gone to to do this. And that's step two now. We've recognized the priority of God's protection. Only he can. Now let's take step two and remember the proof that he already has. All right. Verse 12. Look. Jesus says, while I was with them. He takes the attention of his disciples there and he points it back to the fullness of his trustworthiness to keep them during his time with them on earth. All the verb tenses here switch now to past tense. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given to me. See, if you want proof that God is capable of sustaining you, Jesus says, here it is. What do you think I've been doing during my time here on earth with you men? I sustained you and I kept you in the name of my Father. I preserved your salvation, he says. That's all the proof that you need that God is capable of doing this because he already has here in the lives of these men. And he he uses the very same word to keep that he's asking the Father to do. See, he says, Father, you keep them just as I have kept them. That's the proof. But then Jesus goes on and he makes this statement that illuminates for us the nature of what it looked like for him to keep these disciples in the name of God, in, in their place before him, in their salvation. He goes on. And here he uses a different word. He says, not only did I keep them, but I also have guarded them. That's a very important word. It's a word that means to carefully watch over, identify a threat, and to eliminate it. It means to shield and secure someone beyond any shadow of a doubt. You know, over the past number of months here, the incredible Israeli defense system known as the Iron Dome has been in the news quite a bit. You've probably heard of it or you've probably seen it. It's an incredibly sophisticated computer system that identifies incoming threats and fires off a missile to intercept and destroy the incoming threat mid-flight. I don't even want to know what kind of mathematics go into the computation of such a system. But if you've ever seen a video of this system at work, you know just how sci-fi real life has actually become. It's just incredible stuff. Well, that is the idea and the picture here behind this word. You could say it this way. 
any spiritual rocket that is heading for the homeland of your heart, well, Jesus just blows it right out of the sky. He is the iron dome of your spiritual life. There are no threats to your eternal security that are going to get through him. Why? Because he guards you. That's what he's saying here. Now, someone might object at this point. One of these disciples surely could have. Wait a minute, Jesus. Are you forgetting about what just happened, you know, plus or minus 55 minutes ago when, when Judas walked out of the room and trusting himself to the devil for crying out loud? I think you're actually running more like 11 out of 12. You're batting 916, which in the baseball world is pretty good, but it's not quite a 1,000. Jesus anticipates that objection, and he handles it here in verse 12 when he says, I've not lost anyone except for the son of destruction, and that was so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. He points back to Judas and says, essentially here, I've lost nobody, and the only one who seems to be lost only looks that way because he was never mine to begin with. He was a son of destruction, not a child of God. And the fact that Judas was a son of destruction and not a son of God shouldn't have been surprising to anyone because it had been prophesied that it would be that way. That's why he says, and that's so that the scriptures might be fulfilled here. So Jesus' track record is not 11 out of 12. No, all 11 who had been chosen by God for salvation had been protected fully by Christ. And if you want a graphic picture of what that actually looked like during his time on earth, well, then let's just talk about Peter for a few minutes. If you think you're in over your head here, well, Peter was a man who knew what it was to be in over his head, quite literally. You remember back in, in John chapter 6, you want to talk about being in the deep end? The story of Jesus walking out to the boat on the water through the storm. Well, Peter sees him coming, and in a moment of mediocre faith and independent effort, Peter, Peter jumps out the boat and starts walking towards Jesus, miraculously, on the water. But suddenly, Peter realizes what he's doing and takes his eyes off of Jesus and says, uh-oh, and he proceeds to drop like the rock-headed disciple that he is and sinks. And what is Jesus's response to that occurrence? He doesn't watch Peter just sinking slowly beneath the waves saying, well, at least he tried. Rest in peace, Peter. No. Jesus lifts Peter up. He protects him. He restores his faith. He forgives his doubt and he sustains him moving forward because he was with Peter. See, with Christ, there was protection. Without him, there was only going to be defection. I mean, just look at what happens in John chapter 18, the very next chapter that we'll be in in several weeks to see what Peter does in Christ's absence and the mess that he makes out of it on his own. See, here's the point. The only thing that made the difference between John chapter 6, where Peter is, is rescued and sustained, and John chapter 18, where Peter just flames out, is the work of Jesus in being present to actively guard his life. See, it was the work of Christ that protected Peter and all the rest of them, and by the way, will protect you too, 
See, that work that Christ has already done is all the proof positive that you and I need to know for certain that God has the capacity to keep me secure and guarded. The work of Christ has already demonstrated to us God's ability to do this. And so why, I now ask you again, would we ever doubt the reality of our salvation once it has been granted? He is capable because of who he is. And he has already proven his capacity to do this. So what does that mean? Well, it means that as you undertake to bring God glory, which is the thrust and the point of John 17, and you turn now to face this fearful world, don't forget that you are backed up by the power of God on the one hand preserving you, and on the other hand, you've got the work of Christ securing you because they bat a thousand and, and you can pursue the glory of God knowing with confidence that, that as Martin Luther says in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, though this world with devils be filled and they should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth now to triumph through us. That's what this means. When Jesus points back to his work and says, I have guarded them and none of them has been lost. That's all the proof that you and I need to know that God's promises to save are trustworthy and we don't need to doubt them. Well, that now leads us to a final step on this pathway to knowing and finding the assurance of our eternal security. And that is now, this is the good step, <laughs> to, to rejoice in the product of God's protection. See, when you willingly believe that God is the one who sustains you, not you, when you willingly cling to the work of Christ that has proven God's capacity to do this, then you're going to know freedom, strength, and safety. Everything that you need for the living of this life as under the glory of the Lord, John 17 says, this is what you do, and you say, well, how? Well, this is how you do it. It's as you cling to the fact that God alone is the one who will sustain you. Well, let's just work through these three things that are produced by God's protection in your life. Here's what awaits you if you choose to believe this. You're going to know freedom. You're going to find strength. You will know safety. And let's just break these down one at a time to seek to understand the benefits that are yours in faith as God gives them to you. See, his protection, verse 13, it's going to produce freedom in your life. Look at verse 13 now. He says, so, he restates it now, I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. See, Jesus knows that he's leaving. And there's eager anticipation in his voice here to go back to the Father and to be restored to the fullness of the manifestation of his glory. But, but it's not without an awareness of where that leaves us. And that's the reason why Jesus says, I'm not leaving before I bring true life, freedom and the fullness of joy to those who have believed. And here's the reason why he can say that. Let me show you how this works. If you think that the maintenance of your salvation, your spot in heaven, depends upon your own performance and good works, 
you have entered back into what Paul says in Galatians is yet a different form of slavery. So you don't have joy because if your salvation depends upon your actions rather than on God's protection, then you're in bondage. And there is nothing more horrifying, my friends, than a Christian who says, I've been saved by faith, but now that salvation has got to be maintained by works. That's not freedom. That's voluntary bondage. But when you finally get it into your head that God alone is the one who can sustain me and preserve me, regardless of my regular failures, now you know freedom. And now you know the fullness of Christ's joy because suddenly the shackles of a, of a performance theology fall off and you're simply free and rejoicing to be able to obey because you get to, not because you have to. See, that's why Jesus says here, I'm speaking all these words about God being the one who secures so that, so that these, my followers, might now know true and abundant joy. When you grasp the reality that the Father alone keeps your salvation secure, that's where you find freedom from shame, from doubt, from the power and the penalty of sin, where you're no longer a slave to that kind of life, bound to do its will. No, now you're a son of God, empowered to live the life that He has granted to you. See, there may be some here at this point, we'll call them the wise guys, who may be tempted to take advantage now of what I've just described. That God is the one who sustains you independently from, from who you are. And there may be some who say, well, if God is going to preserve me either way, and I'm going to live it up, I'm just going to go to town because you just told me it doesn't matter what I do if I've been saved, so I'm going to stop fighting my sin and just let fly fly. And Paul addresses that kind of thinking in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. So let's make sure we're being balanced here in this because he says that some might try to say, let's continue in sin so that God's grace may be shown even more. And he goes on to proclaim, may that never be true of you because if you love sin that much where you're willing to abuse the grace of God to indulge yourself, well, then that goes to show that you were never really saved in the first place. Because a true believer, and you're not entitled to this kind of security if you think that way, because a true believer rejoices in grace and does everything that they can through the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in the newness of life that God has granted, but they don't willingly abuse and take advantage of grace in this way. Why? Not because they're in bondage now to the truth. Well, I guess I have to do what God expects. But because of the joy that is found in the freedom of what Jesus is saying here that you have been set free, and now you're free to walk. You're free to know my joy. See, understanding God's protection, it brings us freedom and joy to walk with Him, free from any kind of burden. I obey because I love Him and I get to, not because I have to to keep my salvation. And that is so important to understand. I don't do what I do in my Christian life to make sure that Jesus reserves my spot in heaven I do what I do knowing and rejoicing in the reality that my spot has been secured for me already. See, that's how this truth brings us freedom. But what else does this mean? Well, his protection also produces strength for us as well. Do you remember the, the statements back in chapter 16? That chapter, which we'll call the hard one in the upper room discourse, 
where Jesus says to the disciples, that world, they're going to hate you because they hated me. That disciple's not greater than his master. It's going to be rough for you. They're going to come after you. But then he ends chapter 16 in verse 33 with this statement. He says, in this world, you are going to have tribulation, but take heart for I have overcome the world. See, as he goes, he hasn't left us with what could be called a wet noodle kind of faith. No, he has installed grit and backbone into those who are his own. Because when you know that the Father, the King of heaven, the the Lord of the universe stands behind you and you have his words living in you, well, then you can stand secure and firm without wavering. He says, the world hates them because they're not of this world, just like I'm not. But never fear, because before I go, I have given them your word, most holy Father. And that is going to be their source of strength. See, do you trust the promises of God or not? His capacity to sustain you. And if you do, then you've got the fullness of the word of God that is there to guide and guard you. And you've got everything now that you need for life and godliness to have strength in the midst of a fallen world. That's what Jesus is pointing to here because in the word of God, when you believe the promises of God that he can sustain you, now there is strength and hope and peace Enough that, that, that even if we don't feel ready to meet the perils and trials of this world, we are able to because we're confident that the word we cling to is the word of God and it alone can sustain us. And that's the reason why he says they've been left with a secret weapon. They have been given your word, my holy father. And in that word, they will have all the strength that they need to face this hostile world. See, if you want to see an application in real life uh, of this principle, then I would point your attention to a, to a man named Martin Luther back in the 16th century. And for those of you who don't know, Luther was a man who challenged the Roman Catholic Church, which taught that salvation came from faith plus works. And Luther says, that's not what my Bible says. I have the word of God, Romans 1.17, and it says that the just shall live by faith, full stop. What I do and my works have no bearing upon the reality and the security of my salvation. And for that statement, he is hauled on to trial and told to recant this heretical view because it's not consistent with the teaching of the church in that day. And so, so he runs back to the word of God as he's hauled on to trial facing the fires of the Inquisition. And he says, look, my judgment must be brought into subjection to God's word. I neither can nor will retract anything, for it is neither safe nor honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Whoa. That's some grit. That's some backbone in that man's faith. Where did it come from? His awareness that the word of God proclaimed a gospel that depends upon the power of God alone. And so he rested on the revealed truth of scripture that God saves and his work had nothing to do with it. And the result was that he had incredible conviction in the face of literal potential fire. 
Friend, that same strength that he evidenced there, that Jesus promises here, can and will be yours when you embrace the exclusive right of God to secure you. And that's what the scripture says. It is now today your only source of strength. So will you find your hope in its pages? See, that's the kind of strength that comes from being grounded in God's protection, which now leads us to a final point, and that's this. His protection, in addition to bringing you freedom and strength, it also produces safety in your life as well. See, when you embrace the reality of God's protection over your spiritual life, then there is great peace and comfort possible, even in the face of great want and discomfort. And that's why Jesus says here, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Keep them safe now. That's his request. And I think that, that, that this verse is a really important clarification here for those of us who are 21st century American Christians with all of our first world problems. We've got pretty good lives, don't we? I mean, so many days go by where the biggest problem that we've got is another driver on the road and what they're doing or the temperature of a designer drink or what color to paint the wall. And all of that just marvelous comfort that has been afforded to us by the, the majesty and grace of Christ, it starts to lull us into a state where we think, I deserve to be comfortable. And God's will for me is that I would be comfortable. And so many people begin to treat him as though he's a genie who exists to make my life what I want it to be, a life of comfortability. And here in this verse, Jesus says very clearly, God's intention is not your comfortability. It is your Christ-likeness. I'm not asking, Holy Father, that you take them out of the heat and the fire of this world that hates them. Why? Because he's already explained back in John chapter 15 that it is the heat and the fire of being in this world that the Father uses to prune our lives. Don't you remember that text? where Jesus very clearly said, you are the branches, I am the vine. My father is the vine dresser, and what does he do? He comes in and he prunes, he cuts painfully those vines which are faithful to bear fruit so that they will bear much more fruit. Remember that? See, God's intention is not to take you out of this world with all the trials and struggles and travails that go with it. No, because your mission, as we've been taught here in John 17, is to put the glory and the nature of God on display before the eyes of the watching world so that his glory and majesty might be made known to all. And if you are removed from that painful equation, well, then how in the world are you going to fulfill your purpose of putting the glory of God on display? No, the mission requires that as Jesus goes, you stay here. But Jesus says, I'm not praying for their comfortability, but I am praying for their stability. I'm praying for their security. I am praying that you will keep them. And then he names a specific kind of threat from the evil one specifically. See, Satan's greatest desire would be to swoop in and destroy your faith. But Jesus isn't about to lose his sheep to the hand of his enemy. No. Instead, he entrusts us to his Father, the Holy Father, the powerful, omnipotent Father, to keep us from the evil one. Because the good shepherd doesn't lose his sheep to the likes of the wolf. Which means now, 
that you and I, if we be found in Christ, if we've got our security and our salvation locked down by the power of God, then despite the difficulties that go with this life, there is no threat of your salvation ever being snatched away from the hand of God. You are eternally safe. And so there is no need for you to fear the loss of your salvation or to doubt God's ability to save or to walk around trembling at the power of Satan because the Son of God who saved you has turned around and re-entrusted you back to the Father who chose you in the first place. And they together now, they've got you tightly clasped between them. And so there is nothing that if you, having been saved, nothing that can separate you from the love of God. And it's to that point that I want us to end this morning. I know this is a bit of an extended reading, but it's really stated so very powerfully that, that it needs to be said in conclusion. See, let's go back to the question that we started with. How is it possible for me to bring glory to God and to manifest Him in my life? Well, it's only possible as I cling to the security that is provided for me by the work and power of God alone to preserve me, to sustain me, to secure me. And if He has done that, which He has, if you know Him, then you need not doubt. Listen now, as I read the words of the Apostle Paul, as he makes just that very point. Romans 8, chapter 30. You can turn there if you want to, but I'm going to read it for us now. Romans 8, beginning in verse 30. And those whom he predestined, now just listen to the chain of events that, that unfolds here. Events that begin prior to creation and don't conclude until after creation. And every single step along the way, the power of God is being displayed to make sure that you don't get dropped. Listen, those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorifies. So what are we going to say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who's going to bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is going to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all those things you are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all a creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? That's the truth. And so, my friend, this morning, if you know nothing of this kind of security and, and safety that is found in Christ, you need to come to Him, repent of your sin, and believe that in Him alone is there strength to be found. In Him alone is there freedom to be found. In Him alone is there safety to be found. And you need to enter into a relationship with Him, the very one that He has called you to when He says throughout this book, you repent now and believe. 
Because today is the day that salvation has been offered to you. And having been offered, once received, once believed, can never be taken away. And so the benefits of what we've been discussing here all morning, they can be yours if you would but turn to Christ as He calls you to repent. But if you're here this morning and you do know Jesus, you have been saved by Him, then let me tell you, you do not need to walk around in despair as a defeated Christian doubting your salvation as though maybe God will or maybe He won't, but I just don't know. No, He has promised. He has sworn by Himself. He is the Holy Father in heaven. And now you having been made one with Him because of the work of Jesus Christ on on your behalf can know the fullness of His joy. You can know the might of His strength as found in His Word. And you can know the safety that comes with being in a place where you can never be snatched away. See, truly... All of us now who know Jesus can say with confidence, as the hymn writer says it, blessed assurance because Jesus is mine. And that's the security that now frees you to joyfully pursue the work of sanctification. And that's what Jesus wants us to talk about the next time that we're together. Let's close in prayer here today.